Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, audience and listeners. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm excited to let you guys know that last week we had Mark Kenny from Think Multifamily and we discussed a lot of interesting stuff about some of the different markets that he's been buying. They have been buying like in five different markets, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, and Florida. And it's very interesting to see, apart from Texas and Florida, which are you know more popular markets, you know, how do they underwrite deals in Alabama and how do they underwrite deals in Tennessee, you know, so... And uh, it's a very interesting episode. I would encourage you guys to uh, listen to that as well. This week, we have Scott Hendricks from Current Investment LLC. Scott is a wealth manager, and we're going to be covering different topics such as DST or Delaware Statutory Trust, for, or, which is uh, another alternative for 1031 Exchange. We're going to be talking some things about 1031 Exchange, and we're also going to be talking about qualified opportunity zones investments and some of the broker dealer licensing, such as Series 7 licensing, which is really important for people who want to raise money using broker dealer license. Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. So did I miss out anything? Do you want to fill in the introduction with anything else that I missed out about yourself? No, I, I appreciate that. I have been a uh, an Austin-based uh, wealth manager, financial advisor for about eight years now. I have a Series 7, which is a general securities license, and I have a Series 66, which is called a combined uniform state license. Uh, I also uh, am licensed with my clients in California and Arizona and Wyoming, in addition to Texas. And I am affiliated with a broker-dealer firm known as Kelton uh, and Associates. They're based in Tampa, Florida. But my business, Current Investments, is based right here in Austin. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I really want to quickly get into the Series 7 being a broker-dealer, right? Because there's a lot of capital out there. There's very, very little deals nowadays. And what's happening is a lot of people trying to raise money, become trying to be a, a money raiser. Uh, but there's a lot of advice that's coming from the uh, SEC attorneys that, you know, you have to do it the right way, right? Uh, and there's a lot of discussion about uh, why not I become a broker dealer, right? So can you define what is a broker dealer, which is basically a licensed person who's allowed to you know, right. uh, legally right. raise money, right? What is what right. is a broker so, dealer? So a broker dealer, in my case, is basically the, uh, I think of it as kind of my back office. The back office that supports registered representatives like me uh, with performing my transactions for my clients, maintaining regulatory oversight and supervision of my activities, uh, ensuring that uh, I receive ongoing training, uh, they handle the registrations with the government entities that oversee all securities business uh, in this country. And there are, you're correct, there are a wide range of licenses that 
govern various aspects of all of this activity. They are now regulated by an organization known by its acronym FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, which is simply the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. And FINRA.org is the website where anyone who would be interested in learning about these licenses or possibly even obtaining one of these licenses could go and look at the menu of the different licenses that FINRA oversees, some of which are for broker-dealers, some of which are for general securities representatives like myself, some of which govern the transacting in illiquid securities and private placements, which are often the kinds of opportunities that I believe you're describing where it is necessary to raise funds. Uh, I don't remember the specific numbers of all of those licenses. There are about two dozen types of licenses that FINRA uh, supervises. And I would encourage your audience, if they were interested to learn more about that, to go to FINRA, F-I-N-R-A dot org. Got it. So how difficult is it to get a Series 7 license? I mean, how long does it take? How difficult is the exam? What do you need to be good at? <laughs> kind of thing. Can you, sure. can you explain? Sure. Well, you know, interestingly, uh, I got my license eight years ago. I know some things have changed as far as the cost. The costs have gone up a little bit. They're still reasonable. Most of these licenses can be obtained for a few hundred dollars, a filing fee, purchasing the study material, scheduling the exam. I would say the process takes anywhere from three to six months. Uh, there are no prerequisites. So you do not have to have a finance degree from college. You don't have to work in the financial industry. Uh, you can simply, uh, if you purchase the uh, application for the license, study the material, take the test and pass the test, you'll obtain one of these licenses. So do you need to know a lot of financial terms? Do, is there a lot of math? Is there calculus involved? <laughs> I wouldn't have passed if there was very much calculus. No, there's, there's not. You, you do not need to know a lot of math. It certainly helps to be familiar with, I would say, intermediate financial concepts. Okay. Certainly basic concepts like, you know, interest compounding, time value of money, uh, cost basis, rates of return, fundamental uh, financial concepts that anyone who wishes to invest or is already an investor uh, should be familiar with. But, but there is no, there's no set list of uh, previous academic or experience requirements that one must have before taking one of these FINRA exams. Got it. So basically, the cost is less than $1,000. You say $300 eight years ago. I'm, uh, again, I'm a little out of date, but I would say, yes, you can still apply for any of these FINRA licenses for less than, I would even say, you know, three to $500. Got it. Got it. And so you say three to six months, you go through the exam. It's not that difficult, you know, to know basic financial concept, which is, I think is important. You're going to be advising people about their money, right? And how, what's the rate of return, right? right? It's a, you know, it's a, it's a designed course of study to maintain the credibility of the industry, the uh, level of professionalism and the basic knowledge base that the, uh, the regulatory bodies in this country want professionals to maintain for the benefit of their clients. 
So when you are taking a series seven and becoming a broker dealer, uh, why would one person want to be a broker dealer? If you want to oversee agents, if you want to essentially work with a group of agents, representatives who will assist you in putting together investment opportunities and seeking investors, seeking clients, raising funds, uh, a broker dealer license, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say a broker dealer license is probably more difficult to obtain a little bit higher barrier because of that nature that uh, that a broker dealer is more of uh, of uh, of an office in charge of a number of representatives who then go into the field and work directly with clients so you are you, are you saying broker dealer has someone under them who works with the clients they could they could okay. there's no reason why a broker dealer could also not be an individual as well Oh, got but it. It, is, got it. It, is, it is a different level of licensing required to have broker-dealer credentials than it is to have securities representative or securities agent credentials as I do. Oh, got it, got it. So Series 7 will get you into the securities agent level, and there's another level where you have to become a broker-dealer, I guess. I, that's, that's reasonably accurate, yes. Yeah, so Series okay. 7... Again, a Series 7 is called General Securities License. That enables me, authorizes me to transact in marketable securities for individual clients or businesses. So I am authorized to recommend and transact, that is, initiate the buying and selling of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, registered private placements, uh, to accredit, you know, and and in that last case, to accredited investors. So it opens up a range of investment transactions that I am authorized to both recommend to clients and then assist them in transacting in those assets. A broker dealer could essentially be in a position to put together deals, to put together or review outside deals that then they would approve and authorize to their representatives to go out and seek investors got or it, recommend got them it. to investors. Got it, got it. It's similar, I think the structure is similar to like in real estate agent versus broker, right? The broker has somebody I, working for them. I wish I thought of that. That's a great <laughs> analogy. I think, okay. I think that's very comparable. Yes. Got it, got it. Very interesting. So I didn't even know that. I thought broker dealer is a person, right? Sometimes can, I mean, can be a person, but it's usually like a company where a lot of agents works for them and these agents get the Series right. 7 licensing. Okay. Got it, right. got it. Right. So I presume if you want to do a fundraising for your lifetime, then you want to get a, a broker. I mean, you want to get a Series 7 licensing and be part of a broker dealer, right? You know, I would advise anyone interested in being licensed in the securities industry to get a Series 7. A Series yep. 7 is almost the gateway license to a range of other licenses. Some of these other licenses do require that the individual have a Series 7 as a prerequisite. Okay. And as okay. I mentioned earlier, there are licenses that are specific to illiquid private placement types of investments. So if I was interested only in raising money for, let's say, for startups or for venture funds, 
or for passive real estate portfolios or deals, I would encourage that person to go get the Series 7, but then also look for one of the more specific licenses that delve more deeply into the specialized knowledge required for those kinds of specialized investments tailored to the accredited investor. Oh, got it. So Series 7 is just basic, and then there's a lot more specific to the niche, I guess. Yes, to the- right. Now, now the, the Series 7 enables me to do both, but the accredited investor deals that I am able to recommend to clients must first be approved by my broker-dealer. Okay, got it, got it. If I had one of these more specialized licenses, I might be able to go out and self-approve or do my own independent due diligence and then recommend a particular investment to an accredited investor. But as such right now, I I need to go to my broker-dealer and say, hey, here's a good deal. It looks like it would be right for one or several of my clients and then ask my broker-dealer to scrub it, do their due diligence, and then if they approve it, I would be authorized to go raise funds for. Got it, got it. So if one of our audience who want to raise money for commercial real estate, you know, a syndication or multifamily, so they can get a Series 7 license and go and work for a broker-dealer. And in that, while they work, they can propose to raise money on a specific multifamily or any other commercial syndication, I guess, to the broker-dealer. And the broker-dealer need to approve that then he can go and raise money for that particular right. syndication. Okay, got it. And uh, I mean, if it's not confidential, do, yes. if it's not confidential, do we know how the broker, I mean, how does this agents get compensated in terms of percentage? What's the, is there a range? If it's not confidential, if it's confidential, then it's okay. Well, <laughs> no, it's not really confidential. In, 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 in my case, it's not confidential. In fact, it all has to be completely transparent and disclosed oh, to okay. the investor. So okay. on, on the... Uh, for example, on a, uh, a non-traded REIT, uh-huh. if I was to recommend a real estate investment trust to a client that had previously been approved by my broker-dealer, I would earn a commission. In most cases where the investment is illiquid, uh, I'm not going to put that into a fee-based account. Uh, it's a standalone transaction that might complement that particular investor's portfolio. Uh, they agree. I would disclose my commission, and my commission generally runs between about 4 to 6% on the deal. Again, it's very comparable to what a real estate agent might earn on the sale of a, of a, of a property. But I'll disclose my commission. Uh, if the investor wishes to proceed, then I'll help them invest, and I'll earn uh, a commission on that transaction. So 4 to 6% of the money being invested, is that right? Correct. Got Correct. it. Got it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, four to six percent of the investor's uh, contribution, I would earn as a commission. A percentage of that, I would share with my broker dealer, my back yeah. office. Got it. Uh, Got and it. then, kind of the way we think about it with with these securitized real estate deals is, if you invest a hundred dollars, you know, ninety four dollars of your investment goes into the ground. Got it. Yeah, I understand. With, I understand. With, you know, approximately a, a 6% sort of transactional cost. 
Got it. And do you get paid in the beginning or do you get at the end or during the transaction or how does that? that it really varies. It really varies depending on how the deal is structured. Okay. It really varies. In many cases, in many cases, my commission will be earned up front, but there are certain deals where where my commission may be considerably less up front, but I'll get an annual payout. Over okay. the life of the uh, of the time that the investor holds that deal, it really just depends from deal to deal. And it's a one-time commission, right? That's it, right? There's no like, I mean, like like for example, in, in most uh, cases. Yeah, so I think what some people are doing is basically they're getting a GP percentage, which is can be a lifetime. I mean, of that investment, but this is slightly different. You get commission flat fee four to six percent in the beginning and that's i mean not in the beginning of in most cases right so then right. you're done i guess right yeah most of my business james is uh is is fee-based portfolio management so, so i may work with a client who has a portfolio of stocks and bonds and i'll earn a percentage of that account value over the time that i manage it on behalf of my client it's it's in these cases of the one-time private placement transaction or like a REIT or a Delaware Statutory Trust, where I'll simply earn a one-time commission. And Got then the investor, the investor will then own a passive property, a passive asset that will generate passive income for that client. But if they also have, have hired me, so to speak, or work with me to manage their other portfolio, that may be on more of a percentage-based or a, a, a fee-based relationship. Got it. Got it. So is it a public information on which uh, agent or which broker dealer is doing better than the others like like the stock market in terms of performing for their clients or is it all private you know that's that's one of those that's one of those questions that can always only be answered with the words it depends Okay. Uh, it's it's really okay. difficult it's really difficult when you come down to investing for individuals and for let's say for business owner clients to compare performance because each and every investor has so many different goals and different risk tolerances and different timelines that it, it makes it very difficult. It really is apples and oranges to compare the performance of an entire book of business, either held by an advisor like me or overseen by a broker dealer. Uh, it really is, it, it, it almost makes no sense to try to compare rates of return or performance simply because each and every investor has a unique objective. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, that's a really good comment. I mean, returns are one thing, right? But risk profile of the investors and, uh, you know, how risky right. is the deal itself is another, you know, another factor, right? And everybody has right. their own taste or flavor that they want to take on when they want to invest. Right. Awesome. Awesome. And why does an accredited investor want to come to a broker dealer versus going to a private uh, syndication model uh, and invest privately? I think a lot of it has to do with the extra risk that you are mitigating by uh, looking for investments that have already been registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission and have been scrubbed, that is, have been uh, researched thoroughly by a professional organization. Uh, and, you know, there are certain things like just the credibility of the firm, the track record, of successful deals that it has offered to clients that have exited, all the kinds of things you might look into with a private uh, syndication deal. But for some investors, that extra assurance of knowing that it has met the registration requirements of the Securities and Exchange Commission and has been 
approved, scrubbed and approved by a, a registered and licensed broker dealer. Got it. Got it. Basically, that does that for a living. That does it, you know, hundreds of times a year, looks at, at deal uh, memoranda and all of the documentation that goes into assuring investors that the deal is sound. And, and while you can never completely eliminate risk in any deal, I think that there's a certain risk premium that is uh, reduced with registered and professionally researched opportunities. Got it, got it, got it. Although I think I want to I wanna just clarify one thing. So the, usually the investor's equity is paid out of their equity. Right? I mean, the broker dealer or the agent fees in this model is paid out of their equity, whereas in the syndication model, a lot of times people who, you know, who become part of the GP as, as part of the, you know, one of their functions to raise money, they get the money from the GP, not from the passive investors. So that's one big distinction, right? Because uh, it is. That's correct. That's correct. It makes a difference as well. So, so in terms of profile of customers who come and look for broker dealer and agents who works with broker dealers, I mean, is it like a lot of family officers, a lot of institutions, or is it a lot of private accredited investors? How, how, how would you say in terms of percentage? I think the, I think the answer is yes. In, in my, you know, and again, every, every, uh, every wealth manager's business is different. In my case, I primarily work in the in the area of regulation D uh, filed illiquid or or uh, passive real estate and other types of deals. I generally am working with the high net worth individuals, okay, high net worth investors who are accredited and are simply looking to add or, or complement their existing portfolio with passive income through through real estate, through business development companies. Uh, I also transact in oil and gas, master limited partnerships. So it, it's, yeah, it's, it's the investor in my case who is looking to diversify a portfolio and derive passive income at a rate that is more favorable than they would get in the bond market these days or certainly more favorable than they would get in something like a, a bank-insured CD or savings account, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, doesn't have the inclination or the, uh, the uh, experience to go in and evaluate real estate from a private syndication that others might feel they, that they do have. So I'm able to offer for the less experienced real estate investor uh, the kinds of opportunities to derive passive income uh, without the uh, the expertise that it might take to evaluate a, a syndication deal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, the professionalism, of course, makes a lot of difference compared to someone, you know, coming out from a weekend boot camp, <laughs> right? So very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's really good. There's always, you know, <laughs> there, there, there are always different paths. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so coming back to 1031 and DSTs or Delaware Statutory Trust. So, right. so 1031 is, you know, a lot of people knows what's 1031, where it's basically an exchange mechanism between real estate to a much larger real estate uh, of the same kind, where someone have to identify like three deals uh, within 45 days of closing of the current deal and they can roll over their capital gain. They can defer the capital gain and they can defer the depreciation recapture back to the, the new deal, which they should close within six months. Am I right? I mean, did I miss out some... Uh, some uh, every, 
You know, that's that's pretty good. Everything you said is correct. Okay. Uh, I would simply add, mm-hmm. and the way I like to describe it, uh, a 1031 transaction is it's taking advantage of a section of the tax code, and that's all 1031 is, is simply a section of the Internal Revenue Code that allows a real estate investor to sell a property or multiple properties and exchange the proceeds into other real estate, either a single property or multiple properties that can be either active or passively owned and defer all taxes that might be paid as a result of either capital gains, depreciation recapture. Uh, There are a few other taxes that may come into play. For example, if you're in a state that has a state capital gains tax like California, that can also be deferred under the federal tax code section 1031. But you're correct about the the timelines. There are uh, pretty strict timelines that must be met in a 1031. And I often tell groups of real estate agents and investors that a 1031 is widely known. A lot of people know about it, but it still kind of has some stigma or some intimidation factor about it that prevent it from being widely used. And so part of what I try to do is help my clients and others understand the 1031 process. What the the primary thing they're going to gain is what they might have otherwise paid in taxes, they can keep in equity and and reinvest it into other real estate. You mentioned that uh, in many cases, an investor will trade up uh, with the 1031 going into a larger holding in real estate. I also see a lot of clients who, who spread out their investment and diversify into other classes of real estate or into other geographic areas that they may not have owned previously. So it really is a wonderful way for real estate investors to both diversify, expand, and defer the tax liability in the process of building a portfolio of real estate. Very interesting. So, but it's within the, within the real estate uh, asset class, right? Can they go from uh, real estate, you know, equity uh, 1031 into something else other than real estate? Not uh, as of the end of 2017. And, and okay. this is something that's, that may be new to your audience. So with the, with the last uh, tax bill, the, I think it was called the Tax Cut and Jobs Act passed right. by the government in uh, Washington back at the end of 2017. Uh-huh. The rules of 1031 were limited, uh, whereas previously investors were able to exchange property in and maybe in uh, non-real estate asset. For example, if you owned a, I like to use the example, if you owned a classic car collection, you could sell your antique automobile and exchange the proceeds into real estate or into more cars or fine jewelry uh, and still do it under Section 1031. All of that went away at the end of 2017 and left only real estate. Tangible property is now the only asset class that can be exchanged under the tax deferral uh, section of 1031. Okay, so it's still, I mean, so so that's that's something new. I didn't even know that previously before 2017, you can exchange from other than real estate to other than real estate. Now, if, even though now, you know, we all are real estate people, right? So we just, it's all within real estate, which is good, right? right? So Right, right. But that's, and you also hear that, 
you know, another common misconception about 1031, the 1031 exchange is also sometimes commonly called the like-kind exchange. Like-kind is a phrase that is used in the actual language of the tax code. And a lot of investors and, frankly, a lot of real estate agents confuse the phrase like-kind as meaning that if you sell multifamily, you must buy multifamily. Or if you sell a commercial property, you must buy a commercial property. That is not the case. Like-kind is very broadly defined by the IRS, meaning if you sell anything that has a physical address, a tangible property, you can buy any other category of tangible property. So if you sell a block of single-family homes that you've held as rental property, you can go buy a warehouse. Or if you sell a self-storage property, you can go buy a ranch. So it's really any kind of property can be exchanged for any other kind of property. As long as we're talking since 2017, as long as we're talking real estate. Okay, so let me clarify that because we had some kind of sound issue there. So after 2017, we can, <laughs> no, no worries. So we can go and, and exchange, even though it says light kind, but you can go between different asset class, like buying from single family to a ranch or from multifamily exactly. to single family. Okay, so you're still within real estate, you are good, I guess, right? Got it. That's right. That's right. Got it. Got it. Got it. And and I think one of the common strategy that a lot of generational real estate investors use is basically to to buy real estate and keep on exchanging until they die. And when they die, they give it to their kids as a gift, right? And where the cost basis starts all over again. I mean, that's a generational wealth passover, right? Is that true? I mean, did I say it correctly? It is. And really, the 1031 exchange is, a, is I believe, a terrific way to build a real estate legacy. If, if the investor has heirs or hopes one day to pass a, a legacy of real estate on to their heirs, 1031 exchange is an excellent way to do that because as long as you continue to sell and then buy real estate under the rules of section 1031, there's no limit to the number of times you can do it. And as long as you continue to do it, you have deferred your tax liability each time. Now, if at any time you chose to cash out and simply sell your holdings and take the cash and walk away, you're going to owe the tax. And in fact, you're going to owe the cumulative tax that you have been deferring. So there actually is, with 1031, a fairly strong incentive once you've begun the process to just keep doing it. And if you keep doing it until your time is up and you have heirs waiting in the wings, you will, upon the date of death of the original owner, you will leave, that owner will leave to their heirs a legacy of real estate that upon the date of death is stepped up in cost basis. That's the term that the, that the auditors use, such that the cost basis will then become equal immediately to the market value as of that point in time. And as I like to say, the heirs, if they don't wish to hold on to real estate, they conceivably could turn around the day after the funeral and go sell everything and pay virtually nothing in uh, capital gains or depreciation taxes. Got it. So that is an awesome 
cheap there, right? You can use real estate to not pay tax and make tons of money. And but you, of course, your kids or your heirs will will inherit that, and they will make the money. But it's a it's a big way to give your wealth that you have created to your heirs, right? Uh, Right. And uh, without paying any tax. Right. And, and again, it, it would then be up to that next generation, whether they want to continue to own that real estate and continue to enjoy the benefits of passive income and all the other benefits of owning real estate in a portfolio. Or, as I said earlier, if they chose to get out at that time, because of the step up in cost basis, it would potentially eliminate or virtually eliminate all of the uh, capital gain tax liability. Got it. And also the depreciation recapture, right? Depreciation recapture as well. Now, of course, if there's an estate tax, depending on the size of the portfolio that is inherited, an estate tax may still come into play, but that's that's an entirely different situation. Estate tax. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. So let's come to DST, Delaware Statutory Trust. And some people say this is similar to 1031. Can you explain what is this and why we should use this compared to the normal 1031? Absolutely. So a Delaware Statutory Trust is not widely known. I've been uh, I've been familiar with these opportunities for about four to five years now, and I've spoken to many real estate groups, investor groups, agents, attorneys, CPAs. The Delaware Statutory Trust, in short, is the only form of passive real estate that is eligible as replacement property in a 1031 exchange. So expand on that. A Delaware trust is often compared to a REIT. It's very different from a REIT in many important ways, but it is a legal form of ownership set up around property, around physical property, and then offered to investors who may invest in a fractional percentage of the underlying property via the trust. Because a Delaware trust must own physical property, the IRS recognizes it as another way an investor could uh, engage in a 1031 exchange. In other words, the 1031 is just the process of selling and then swapping or buying other real estate. You could either, as an investor, buy an active property or properties that you're going to be the landlord of and hold the deed and be responsible for the rents and the tenants and the repairs. Or you could own a fractional interest in a Delaware statutory trust. You would be a passive investor. The sponsor of the trust would have all management and landlord responsibilities. But as a fractional investor, you would derive your proportionate share of the income. So, And and because there is underlying real property in a Delaware trust, the IRS allows these types of trusts as an eligible investment via Section 1031. And, and so here's, here's really how it works. And this is kind of the, 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 the main core of, uh, I think, the benefits of the Delaware Statutory Trust. In Section 1031 exchanges, the investor sells a property. That begins, as you alluded to earlier, that begins a 45-day calendar a 45-day clock. That investor has 45 days to identify, in most cases, up to three properties that they intend to reinvest in. 
Now, they don't have to invest in all three. They could identify one primary property and two backups uh -huh. or two properties and one backup. But they've got to have those properties identified in the first 45 days. A Delaware statutory trust makes an excellent backup property because it's passive for one thing. It's open to investment. It's not going to fall out of escrow during the first 45 days as sometimes real properties do. In other words, it's not going to go off the market. If that were to happen with the investor's primary or secondary property, and the deals weren't going to close there, if they have named a Delaware Trust as a third or as any of their backup properties, their money could then roll back into that trust as an investment, and that would effectively secure their 1031 transaction from start to finish. So Delaware Statutory Trusts make great backup properties in that first 45-day identification period. Secondly, in cases where an investor is selling a property and buying a property for less or actually buying a less expensive property, maybe a value-add property that they want to improve, and they're going to have some leftover cash from the deal that they sold, a Delaware Statutory Trust makes a great way to capture or invest that leftover cash and still secure 100% of the transaction, the 1031 transaction, from tax. So as a simple example, if you're selling a million-dollar property and the property you want to buy is eight fifty. dollars 850000 You've got 150000 left over. It might be hard to find another real property for 150000 in some markets. So a Delaware Trust comes along as a great way to park or invest that residual leftover cash, securing 100% of the 1031 proceeds from taxation, at least deferring 100% of the tax liability, and giving the investor now two different properties. One is the primary property for 850 that they wanted to buy and fix up or be the landlord over. The other is the 150,000 fractional interest in a passive investment that they will have no work responsibilities to maintain, but they'll be receiving a passive income from that trust. And then the final way that I think Delaware trusts are powerful is if the investor is simply wishing to continue to own real estate, but really wants to get out of the landlord business entirely. And that would be someone who maybe has been an active landlord for a better part of their investment career, wishes to continue to hold real estate because it's a great asset, why not? But doesn't want to be a landlord anymore. So they may sell all of their active real estate properties, declare their intent to do a 1031 exchange, and then pick two or three Delaware Statutory Trusts to put 100% of the proceeds into, they now have switched from being an active to a 100% passive investor. Someone else does the work of the landlord, that is the sponsor of the trust. They begin to receive the mailbox money or the passive income, still own real estate as part of their portfolio, and they've effectively deferred all of their, what would have been their tax liability from selling their active holdings. And another wonderful thing about, two more points about a Delaware Trust. You can do a 1031 exchange out of a Delaware Trust. So when the underlying property in the trust sells, which signals the liquidation of the trust, 
the investor will be notified with plenty of time. They can then declare another 1031 and take their proceeds out of the Delaware Trust, which may have appreciated over that time, and they can take those proceeds and swap them into some other property. They can either go into another trust or they can go back into the active real estate market if they choose to. Or, of course, they have the option to simply cash out, take the cash, and at that time, they would incur the tax liability. And then the other benefit of a Delaware trust is you do not have to do a 1031 exchange to invest in a Delaware trust. Delaware statutory trusts are open to cash investors. So it's a good way for an accredited investor, which you must be in order to invest in a Delaware trust, you must be an accredited investor, but you do not have to be bringing money into the trust via 1031. You could be a cash investor, but once you're in a Delaware trust as fractional owner with either your cash investment or your 1031 proceeds, you can then, when the trust liquidates, do a 1031 exchange. So a Delaware trust provides a good way for a real estate investor who wishes to be passive, doesn't have a property to sell, but wants to, in the future, be able to do a 1031 exchange. As long as they've got cash and they are accredited, they can invest in a Delaware trust. And then, you know, three to five to sometimes seven years down the road, when the trust liquidates, they'll be eligible to do a 1031 exchange and defer any potential tax that they might have otherwise paid. Wow, I didn't know so many things about DSTs. <laughs> this is very eye-opening <laughs> eye eye for me. It's like, it's like a syndication, which is, but it's a tax-protected syndication, right? It's a, it's a, right, it's a, it's a way to take 1031 money Mm-hmm. money coming out of a 1031 deal and put it into an investment open to up to 500 individual investors typically which is far more than something like a tenant in common where you're limited mm-hmm. to only 35 investors okay Delaware Trust yes you're a fractional owner of a real estate portfolio that is managed by a sponsor who acts as trustee you basically, your only job is to go to the mailbox and, and receive your checks. Got it, got it. Yeah, I was, I was trying to bring that up. Tenants in commons is another way. I thought Delaware Statutory Trust is similar to tenants in common because in tenants in common, so everybody puts their 1031, everybody have their own LLCs, all different, different yeah. uh, entities, but they work as one. But here, but you, you brought up a good point. There's a limit on 35 uh, ten, tenants in common that can be done, but DSTs right. are 500. Right people, I guess. So, and, and an important distinction to make there uh-huh. is that with a much higher cap on the number of investors, you're able to fractionally own much larger institutional scale types of real estate. So you may be able to be a fractional investor in a downtown you know, Dallas office tower that's in a Delaware trust, whereas 35 investors, it would be difficult to pull together 35 investors who could afford to purchase a multi-million dollar property. But with the Delaware Trust, you often are a fractional investor in a property portfolio that could potentially be worth tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. So access to a larger scale institutional type of property is one of the benefits of, that a DST has versus a tenant in common. And then the other one, now some will see this as a, as a negative, some may see it as a positive. With a tenant in common, 
each one of the up to 35 investors has a vote. They have some control over the upkeep and the sale or the management of that property. And as you know, when the, when the property is going to be sold, you've got to get the unanimous vote of all 35 investors. Mm-hmm. With the Delaware Trust, the investor is 100% passive. They do not have any say, any control over the management of the property. That's the entirely of the responsibility of the sponsor. They also do not have any control or voice over when the property is going to be sold. So, so if, if that appeals to an investor, in other words, if they say, I don't want to have to vote or to have to go get the other 34 people to vote, I just want to be passive. A Delaware trust is a good option compared to a tick. But what is the uh, average return of Delaware statutory trust? Right, because... Right. And so again, that varies. That varies uh, from you know market conditions and from uh, the different of Delaware trusts that are available. Typically, what I have been seeing lately are rates of return between about five and seven and a half to eight percent, and that's cash on cash. So, cash on cash or nominal rate of return is let's just say six to six and a half percent being the midpoint. So while that is not typically uh, a strong rate of return compared to a private syndication or even compared to a lot of tenant and common deals, you have to look at the other benefits. One, again, the access to larger uh, institutional scale property, the fact that the Delaware Trust is going to be a registered program sponsored uh, and regulated by oversight bodies. And then three, although this is also the case with other types of real estate investment, the sponsor of the Delaware Trust in rules similar to REITs, if they are taking depreciation on the underlying property, that tax credit has to be distributed to their investors. So while the nominal rate of return might be 6%, that is the cash on cash return, in many cases, the investor is going to see some portion of that cash dividend be already after tax. In other words, it's going to receive the benefit of that depreciation tax credit that the sponsor is taking. So depending on the investor's tax bracket, their effective rate of return is going to be higher than their nominal rate of return, given that some portion of that distribution is after tax money. Got it, got it, got it. But is that, let's say, for example, 6% cash and cash, is it including the sale of the property or is there such thing called the sale because they are physical assets under this DST, right? Yeah, no, no, you're, you're right. And, and, and I thank you. I, I should be clear. That is the cash flow. Let's say that, the, again, rates of return I'm typically seeing now average, I would just say average around 6% for this example. That is the, uh, that's the cash flow. So that's the annualized cash flow that the investor is going to receive in monthly checks, obviously one-twelfth of that amount in monthly checks. The underlying property where they have their principal, if that underlying property appreciates over the life of the trust and is sold at a value greater than it was acquired for, the investor is also going to receive their prorated share of that appreciation. 
So the aggregate return, as I like to call it, or the 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 total return, total return. is if the property appreciates, is definitely going to be higher than the than the cash flow rate of return. Okay. So do you have that kind of sample numbers on roughly what's the performer? I, I, I can refer generically to some of the deals that I've seen. So let's sure. say if a if investor if an investor puts a hundred thousand dollars as as let's say in the scenario where I describe leftover cash, if they've sold a million dollar property and they want to do a ten thirty one and buy a nine hundred thousand dollar property and put that residual one hundred thousand into a Delaware trust. Five years, I'm just going to use a number, typically four to five, six or seven years. And, and again, during this time, the investment is illiquid. The investor cannot get their money back on their own schedule. They have to wait oh, okay. until the sponsor finds a buyer and sells the underlying property. But most real estate investors understand the concept of illiquidity. Uh-huh. So if they've put 100000 into a Delaware trust and five years down the road, the sponsor finds a buyer for that property and sells it at 25% gain, 25% appreciation, the investor is going to get their 100000 back. They're going to get 25000 for their, their proportionate share of the 25% gain. And during the five years they've held it, They've collected, I'll use the 6% rate of return as an example, they've collected $6,000 a year in monthly distributions Uh at 6% rate of return. So they've, in effect, received, in a very simple example, their $100,000 back, they've gotten $30,000 of cash flow over five years, and they receive a $25,000 gain or appreciation on their original investment. Got it. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, that, that's the one. I mean, depends on the structure of syndication, right? Uh, usually, you know, like for me, we allow people to buy and sell their shares, uh, you know, even within the investment period. But looks like DST doesn't give that uh, flexibility, right? Uh, DST, and you know, again, it's it's important for me to also say that that with DSTs, there are still risks involved. Uh-huh. You can lose money as you can with any type of investment. The uh, the illiquidity of the investment is uh, something that the investor has to be informed of and understand. If they are an investor in a DST, they're at the mercy of the sponsor for the holding period. Now, while the uh, disclosures require that I tell investors it's a five to seven year hold time with no option to exit. Got it. Typically, with the market right now being what it is, I have seen DSTs liquidate sooner than five to seven years. It simply varies from deal to deal. What is the fee that the sponsor take in DST? That, again, it varies from deal to deal. Typically, there's a, there's a you know, 1% uh, dealer or sponsor fee uh, at closing. Uh, and again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I do earn a commission. Okay. On investment that goes into a DST, it can range from anywhere from you know four to six percent, and uh, it's again it's it's in the same ballpark as if you were working with a real estate agent, okay. and buying physical property, or Got working it. with a deal syndicator and buying into a a syndication. Very interesting. I mean, uh, I didn't know this vehicle exists, and it's, it's very powerful in terms of ten thirty one money specifically, right? Because uh, and I was thinking that you always have to go 
in 1031, you have to go to larger properties, but it looks like you can buy a smaller properties and take the remaining and put into DSTs, I guess, right? So Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really part of my message that uh, using a DST is a great way for an investor to diversify. If, if it. it is in their interest, first of all, the primary reason anyone would undertake a 1031 is to defer the tax. But a DST allows that investor to diversify into different types of property, both in terms of asset class or asset category and active and passive real estate. So they can begin to sort of, you know, put more chess pieces onto the chessboard, I guess, and look at passive investment, active investment, lodging, self-storage, multifamily, single-family, industrial, commercial, build a real estate portfolio that is truly diversified in terms of geography, asset category, and the active and passive ownership status. Got it. So let's quickly talk about qualified opportunity zone. I mean, there's so much of details in that opportunity zone. I don't know what, I don't, I don't think so. We have time to go into very high, very, a lot of details there. But at high level, what is qualified opportunity zones investment? How does that differ from a normal 1031 and DST and, you know, investing into opportunity zone? Right. So qualified opportunity zones were also part of the same tax act that passed at the end of 2017. They are a fairly new concept or a fairly new opportunity for investors. And, uh, the case can be made that opportunity zones were written into law because investments that were not real estate were ex- excluded from Section 1031 eligibility. So an opportunity zone is a geographic region of the country, and there are a thousand or more opportunity zones all over the country where the local authorities have designated a desire to have investment flow into those zones from investors in order they may be you know below market regions of cities or communities where the thought being that if investment dollars flowed into these areas we would have more healthy economic development qualified opportunity zone investors may use gains from a sale of an investment other than real estate. Whereas uh, with 1031, all you can exchange is real property. So for example, if, uh, if an investor has a stock portfolio and it's gone up in value, they want to sell their stock portfolio, but they'd rather not pay the capital gains tax that that's going to incur they could invest the gain from that sale into a qualified opportunity zone, defer the tax liability, invest in a property or a real estate or a real estate fund that's building projects in that zone, and then they would enjoy certain tax benefits due to the deferral of their original gain if they maintain that investment in the opportunity zone for 10 years they could then cash out and take their money and pay no tax. So one of the important differences between a 1031 exchange and an investment in an opportunity zone is, to put it simply, you don't have to die in order to cash out tax-free. But do you get 100% tax being erased? Not, not in 
the first case. There, and it, you're correct. It really is complicated, and we could probably have a whole separate episode on qualified okay. opportunity zones. There are really two appreciation events that are subject to favorable tax treatment when it comes to talking about opportunity zone investments. The first one is the gain that the investor realized on the sale of their asset, whatever it may be, that they want to put into an opportunity zone. So if they sold real estate that had gone up in value or sold stock, or I'll go back to my classic car example, and had an investment sale that would have been subject to capital gains tax, they can defer that tax up to seven years by putting that investment into an opportunity zone. Now, it is only a seven-year deferral. So after seven years, the investor will owe a portion of the tax they would have owed on the original sale of their investment. It'll only be, in the case of a seven-year deferral, it'll only be 85% of the tax they would have owed. So it is truly just a deferral. You do have to come up with the uh, tax payment, at least 85% of the tax you might have owed seven years ago in year seven, that tax bill does come due to the IRS. But understand now we're talking about two different investments. The investment that was sold to make the original Opportunity Zone investment, the tax for which is deferred seven years. So it might be a benefit to an investor's cash flow. And then the investment within the Opportunity Zone itself. And if that investment turns out to have been a good one, and the real estate or the property or the project in the opportunity zone appreciates over 10 years, whole time, and the investor then cashes out of that opportunity zone investment, that will be exempt from capital gains tax. Oh, so so the, it's, that, okay. it's, it's that second investment in the opportunity zone that if it is a winner, if it appreciates over 10 years, the investor has the potential to cash out with their gain and owe zero capital gains tax. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. So let me, let me summarize 1031 DST and qualified operating zone. So 1031, right. let's say I have a, a million dollar where I want to defer my tax and my depreciation recapture. I just buy another asset, right? A, a larger asset or multiple asset. But should be larger value than all of it, get deferred uh, to the next asset. And if I don't want to pay tax, I have to you know, keep on doing 1031 until I die, pass it to my heirs, right? Um, right, right. That's the 1031, right? So that DST is basically, it's the same as 1031, but it's a lot more, I mean, you are basically, it's more of a passive investment, right? You're putting well, let, all me, your let, me, let me jump in there and, and clarify. Sure. Think of a, 10, a, a 1031 is just a transaction. Okay. A 1031 is just a kind of a transaction. Okay. It's a way to sell and then buy real estate and defer the tax, not Got pay it. tax during that transaction. A DST is an asset. It's a kind mm. of an investment. It okay. is a passive real estate investment that can be a part of, it can be a part of the equation 
of a 1031 transaction. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And yeah. qualified opportunity zone is basically it's the same as 1031, but you're deferring your tax for, for seven years. And if you keep that money, I mean, on seventh year, your bill is due to the IRS, but you get 15% forgiveness, I guess. You, get right? a, you, get a, you basically, you get a discount. Discount you get a discount on the, on the tax that you would have owed in year one. You'll owe 85% of it uh-huh. by the time year seven comes around. Yeah. And, and, and so again, that was the tax you would have owed on whatever it was you sold to make the Opportunity Zone investment. Got it. Got it. So the original tax difference, you get, 80, you only pay 85% after year seven, right? So you get 15% Correct. forgiveness. But I think the bigger thing right. in, in Opportunity Zone is whatever deal that you're investing in an Opportunity Zone, that's completely tax-free in terms of capital gain for after if, 10 years. Right, right. If, if the deal, if the investment you have made in the opportunity zone does well and goes up in value and 10 years down the road, you have the opportunity to exit, you'll owe no tax. Okay. That's very interesting because that's another investment where you don't pay tax at all. And if you're doing development, most of the time you definitely make money, right? If you, if you go through the construction phase and you pass that, I guess, right? Well, you know, and I, I will say that opportunity zones are new. Uh, there are a lot of risks involved. We don't have time probably to go into them here. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, there, there are a lot more considerations to making a potentially successful opportunity zone investment. But in the basics, I think, I think you've, you, you've got yeah. it correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've heard about so much of uh, details in the opportunity zone that you have to be really, really careful whether it qualifies opportunity zone and, you know, there's so many things, right? So... Right. Awesome. Right. That's that's and yeah. you know, James, this is a good opportunity for me just to mention as kind of a, a way of a disclaimer. Mm-hmm. I am not an attorney and I am not a CPA. Absolutely. And one of the okay. most important uh pieces of advice I give to my clients is if you're doing any of these complicated real estate transactions, check with your lawyer, check with your CPA to make sure that you've gotten all your questions answered before you write the check. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think the purpose of this podcast and asking, talking about so many things of this is just educational and just letting people know there's options out there, right? Uh, which is very important because I, I was not aware of DSTs and, you know, there's so much of details of the, you know, opportunity zone, right? Uh, so it was very uh, eye-opening for me. So thank you very much. Good, I appreciate it. Why not you tell our audience how to get hold of you um, if they want to get hold of you? You bet. Sure. Uh, again, I'm Scott Hendricks. Uh, my company is called Current Investments. Uh, my website is currentinvestments.net. That's all one word, current like the flow of water, and then investments, plural, dot net. Uh, you'd be welcome to send me an email or give me a call. My email is scott, S-C-O-T-T, at currentinvestments.net. My phone number is, do you typically, do your guests share their phone number? That's up to you. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fine. I, I don't mind at all. My phone number is, is uh, in, in Austin is 512-563-2134. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Scott. Thanks for coming in. I learned a lot of things. I'm sure my audience and listeners learned a lot of things. And um, that's it. Thank you. It, it was fun, James. Thanks very much. Bye. 
That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.